Hello, everyone. Before we get started, I want to thank the sponsor of this week's episode of This Is Only Test, and that's Blue Apron. I've been using Blue Apron this entire summer to make meals at home, feeling great about it, and avoiding having to go to the store and not know what ingredients to pick up or buying too many ingredients. Blue Apron, for under $10 a meal, delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals, things with things, ingredients that you typically wouldn't have. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals, so they set really high, the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's for ramen noodles or wild-caught Alaskan salmon or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. In September, some of the meals that they are serving include spicy hoisin chicken stir fry with baby bok choy and sesame ginger cucumber salad or summer udon noodle salad with cherry tomatoes, corn, and summer sweet pepper or even paprika spice shrimp and cheddar grits with tomato and sweet corn. Things that Without a service like this, I would have no idea how to make by myself. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash test. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Again, go to blueapron.com slash test. Hey, let's start the show. For Thursday, September 8th, 2016, it is This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested. Let's start the show. Come. Welcome, everyone, to the last podcast sans Norman Chan, who is still exploring the Arctic, due to arrive back in San Francisco sometime tonight, if you're listening to this on Thursday. Uh, we await his return anxiously to hear how it went. Uh, I'm Jeremy. Uh, with me, as always, is Mayor McCheese. Hello. And to his left, making her debut appearance on This Is Only a Test, Annalee Newitz. Hello, Annalee. Thanks for having me. It's, yes. it's great to be here with a snack food as well as a human. <laughs> <laughs> Annalee is uh, as a writer on Ars Technica currently. What is your, um, your position there? Uh, I am the tech culture editor, okay, uh, but I write about science too. So even though it's technically technology, I, I get to break out a little bit. Annalee is one of my favorite writers of all time, especially here in San Francisco. You want to tell us a little bit about your history uh, of, uh, in writing, especially on some of our favorite sites? My history in writing. Um, <laughs> it feels you, like a long biography <laughs> I asked you to tell. I was born in Southern California, um, so, which actually is true. Um, you may know me from the website io9, which I founded and ran for about seven years. And then I moved on and ran Gizmodo for about a year before I came to Ars Technica. And um, I've spent that whole time forcing other people to write about tech and science and culture and doing it myself. Um, I also have a book about surviving mass extinction that came out a couple years ago that Kishore knows about. Yeah, that's and, a great book. Yeah. I mean, it's not the most uplifting book I've ever read, Mass Extinction, but 
Uh, wait, is it, what, is it the subtitle How We'll Survive It, though? Yeah, it's called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How We'll Survive a Mass Extinction. So it has a happy ending. We do survive after much <laughs> uh, horrible tribulation. Um, and I have a science fiction novel coming out next year. Oh, cool. um, what? Yeah, it's Who, called... Who's publishing it? That's Tor Books. Yeah. The excellent Tor Books. Um, and it's called Autonomous, and it's about a pirate and a robot. Oh, sure. Have you yeah. written science fiction before? I have. I've ri- written a number of short stories, but mm-hmm. this was my first novel. That's super so, cool. Yeah, it was really fun and really scary, but now that it's done, I feel a little bit triumphant. So, <laughs> I feel like I'm with a little bit of royalty, not to lionize you, but just like io9 meant so much to me personally, uh, and to be sitting next to one of the founders, I think it's incredible. Uh, what are your thoughts on with everything sort of shifting and changing in that landscape, especially with io9 and Gizmodo, two sites you spent so much time with? Um, do you have any feelings about where they're going to go now? I have so many feelings. Um, <laughs> do you, you have know, any feelings? I Can do have shift? feelings. Um, I mean, like you, I mean, io9 was transformative for me, too. It was like an, a chance of a lifetime to build a site unlike anything else out there. And it was super fun. Um, I met lots of friends through it, um, and, you know, it's still, like, a beloved part of my life. Um, but I think that, um, you know, this past couple, these past two years um, with Gawker Media just under siege legally, um, you know, the outcome was um, unclear, you know, and I think at least now, you know, I think they've found a good home. Um, I, you know, we don't know for sure what's going to happen with Univision, but... Uh, I would much rather have them in the hands of Univision than a lot of the other possibilities. So, um, you know, I think it's the best of a really scary, terrible situation, um, not just for Gawker, but for the media in general, that someone like Peter Thiel could just destroy an independent media company. It's pretty scary. We've talked about that a lot on this show. Uh, And because we put this out on video and audio, uh, we have to pretend to be nice to Peter Thiel on air just so we don't get shut down. Yeah, it's Wait. a it's a good policy. It's yeah, a good policy? you know, okay. um, uh, Peter Thiel, beloved leader of the fight for justice online, and billionaire, and billionaire. Uh, Annalie, you have also earned a PhD from Berkeley, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. Yes. And, <laughs> oh, now we're just going through her CV. <laughs> this is getting crazy. You have this written is for back in history. Yeah. Wired, Popular Science. I'm so glad someone of your expertise can come on the show and tell us what you think about Pokemon Go on the Apple Watch later. Yeah. No, I have thoughts. All right. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm a big Pokemon Go fan, so that's yeah. Um, since it's your debut show, I do have um, a lightning round of six questions for you, so cool. that our listeners know who they're dealing with for, for the rest of the show. <laughs> okay. Um, if you don't mind. I, I don't mind. I'm right. right. I'm prepping. 30 seconds. Star okay. Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. iPhone or Android? Android. VR, fad or fantastic? Fantastic fad? <laughs> oh, nice. I'm in the middle. I'm Walk in the middle. In the line. Um, a book everyone should read? Ooh. Um, Not the book. Just any book. Any book you should read. I can feel read. my judgment rising. I... I mean, I review so many books. I would say right now, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin, which just won the Hugo. It's a fantastic science fiction novel. A movie everyone should watch. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That's so funny. That when you, That's on Twitter. Like, did you, or no, Rebecca mentioned that. It oh, was really? So did you know week. that? No, I didn't. Oh, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, no, it's on the, or the other Tested Podcast just yesterday. I, I, it's a popular. There you go. Sci-fi. Yeah. You call that a rom-com or sci-fi? I would call it a. I would call it science fiction. It's a little bit dark for a rom com. Yeah, yeah. Um, finally, a game everyone should play. 
Dungeons and Dragons. Yes! <laughs> Aced it! <laughs> all right, Annalie, there were no right answers, but you got them all right. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so on with this show. Wait, do we have any non-pop culture things to cover? Well, or? we have some corrections from last oh, week. Oh, you do. Again, I made some mistakes. I was When I was talking about gonorrhea, you know, a topic that comes up from time to time mm-hmm. on this show, I was talking about the lack of antibiotics for gonorrhea and some other... Uh, diseases right now and how that medical uh, uh, limited availability is a crisis. Uh, but I erroneously mentioned that we do not have vaccines for certain other bacterial diseases, which is inaccurate. It was just a slip of the tongue. Okay. You're forgiven. Thanks for, thanks for correcting that. Welcome to the podcast where there's lots of transitions, Emily. <laughs> Mayor McCheese. Oh, yes. You're back from Dragon Con. Yes. The Convention of Dragons. This is my favorite con of the year. I'm assuming you've never be- gone, Jeremy. No, I'm scared of dragons. You've gone before. I have, and I love dragons. Ask me any dragon question. <laughs> any dragon-related question? <laughs> yeah. Where, are you pro or anti-smog really uh, hoarding all that gold? Because I feel like he should have redistributed some of that gold to other dragons in the area, but he was very much a hoarder. Yeah, I don't know how many other dragons there were in the area. It is a, it's a myth, I think a stereotype that dragons are hoarders. Not all dragons are hoarders, oh, but he uh, he is. So I think it's true to his Puff, nature. Puff wasn't a hoarder. No. It's, a, it's amazing that in nine hours of film, we couldn't find out more about more than one dragon. But, Dragon Con. I it, just got back. I think it's my favorite con of the year. It's a con that was started as a fan con, um, really with lots of tracks of fandom, so you can get like your DC, your comics, your Whedonverse, your alt history. Uh, I went to obviously be on the the science track, but I also delved into a lot of other tracks like EFF and space. Uh, and this is my first time going to a con where I really embraced my inner cosplayer in a significant way. So the first day I was on a couple panels about The Expanse. And uh, so I went as Alex from The Expanse, which is always great. Good I call. had the beard for it. Um, it was uh, it was wonderful talking about all of the ways that science interacts with that show. I love that show. Hmm. Uh, I only wish that um, the Corey twins, as I call them, were there as well. They had <laughs> uh, skipped the, uh, the con this year. Uh, and... Uh, and then day two, I was a stonecutter from The Simpsons. I joined that mythical group. And there's many videos online of Frank and I wandering the floor singing the stonecutter song that you can find. Uh, but my favorite one was I went as Mayor McCheese, an outfit that I dutifully built by hand. It is janky and terrible. And I've never high-fived that many people in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always like, you know, you hear Adam on a lot of things talk about, um, you know, his commitment to detail, but that cosplay is for everyone, mm-hmm. that you don't need that, that level of perfection and craft he brings. But, you know, working here, it's intimidating to work next to him and Frank and feel like that license to go out there with the kind of craft and skill I have, which involves like pins and gumption. And, and uh, felt. Yeah, li- lots of felt. I put it together with just some batting and fabric and, I cut the foam for it using my turkey carver, like my electric knife. Um, nice. So it was all very like... <laughs> what did you use for source material? 
Uh, just uh, Google image search. You mm-hmm. know, there is a actual. There's a 70s cartoon. It might have been the early 80s uh, live uh, cartoon series um, with Mayor McCheese in it. Really? He's doing the hustle on the floor when Ronald and the other folks meet him. It's what? a very trippy. Experience. There was a McDonald's Did- TV show. Is yeah, there's a I'm McDonald's kidding. cartoon. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was great. I I led a couple panels as Mayor McCheese, which was pretty funny and hilarious. And I think most of my colleagues didn't know it was me inside this costume for like a day or two, which is one of my favorite parts. But I had an absolute, absolute, absolute blast. And I, I really recommend that con if you're into cosplay or if you're just into deep dives into fandom without um, the sort of celebrity-ness that can uh, clog up the the mm-hmm. works at some other con. It's in the East Coast, right? What's it's in Atlanta. Atlanta. It was 90 and humid, but this con takes place inside hotels, a series of interconnected hotels, so it was not bad. And there's also an incredible parade, right? In yeah. the middle of the con. Of cosplayers? Of cosplayers, just, and it's huge, and it's through downtown Atlanta. Oh, wow. And you've never seen so many Stormtroopers and so many Darth Vader's. Vader's is in. And my favorite thing that I discovered is there's a group of red shirts that will go and slowly die, and their numbers dwindle <laughs> as the parade goes on. That's there's even awesome. a group of there's the entire periodic table of the elements walks in this parade. <laughs> it's just it's so bizarre and beautiful, uh, and like eighty thousand people show up for that parade. Oh, like just the Atlanta. locals. This yeah. is an event for yeah. the kids to come see. That's it's awesome. Geek pride. When did you march? Uh, I didn't All because right. I can barely last a half hour oh, your to system. an hour in that in that costume. I think I posted a picture on Twitter where like basically my upper torso is just soaked and mm. you can see it because I was wearing like a 70s prom shirt with like a velour jacket and a bow tie and a, a vest and spats and pants, all of these things uh, in addition to the head. Commitment. Yeah, it, yeah. it was a wonderful <clears throat> experience. I uh, highly recommend that con. Frank was also there. Mm-hmm. He had a proton pack that he built, but he built it out of foam instead of um, the normal component. So instead of weighing about 30 pounds, it was eight. It was really beautiful. We'll see. I think we're going to try to make a video about it in the future. Uh, and he also brought some of the episode seven props that he built uh, to share on a panel. So it was great seeing Frank out there. Met a lot of tested fans. Shout out to Corey and Anthony and so many more that I can't remember the names of. Uh, but thanks for coming up and saying hi. Uh, and I hope you had as wonderful a con as I did. Cool. I, I know you're excited about uh, one of the announcements there involving the uh, is it the ex-Mythbusters uh, side team, right? Yeah. the I think they were called the Build Team. The Build Team. team. That's it. Was it was Tori, yeah. Grant, and Carrie uh, announced uh, that they have a new show debuting on Netflix on December 9th. It's called The White Rabbit Project. And it's supposed to detail them going down the rabbit hole on numerous builds. I think in a similar vein as what you saw in Mythbusters, but um, it sounded like from the uh, from the the panel, it's a little bit more depth. Like they aren't just doing shorter segments; it's going to be long segments. Cool. Um, this well, time, so they I'm had really great excited. chemistry, so that that's a natural fit. I mean, they can just hit the ground running. Sounds good. Technology. So we have uh, just really two things we're going to cover in the technology section this two week. Two small things. Two very small things <laughs> from two very small companies called Apple and Sony. Um, this morning, they were both of these events, so we covered them as, and then 
more or less live, rushed over here to the podcast, and now we're going to review some of the some of the topics. So, um, I just as an overarching um, review of the Apple event, I was slightly underwhelmed. Um, I I was hoping for more. Something more maybe that we hadn't heard of yet, um, and not to say there weren't anything, but th- there just wasn't any new hardware that we hadn't ever anticipated. Um, it, they launched off with um, th- what I thought was the most exciting thing of the show, which was Mario is actually coming to iOS, to the App Store. Um, people have said for a long time now that Nintendo need to b- embrace mobile because that's clearly where people are going to play their games now. The 3DS has, you know, seen its ascendancy, and now they need to just embrace it, just deal with it. And I, apparently, they're finally on board. They had Miyamoto himself come out and introduce uh, what was it called, uh, Super Mario Run, which is a one-tap Mario game. What do you, are you guys excited about this at all? No. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to muster up some enthusiasm. Is this because you I, don't use iPhones? Uh, yeah, I that mean, does have an impact. I, I I have an iPhone and I use it largely for video and photos. Mm-hmm. So not gaming, not yeah. gaming, not for anything real. It, actually, no. where you lost me was it's a one tap game. It's basically it's a uh, a game where basically Mario just runs automatically. And you have to just deal with him. Yes, yeah. you have to make him jump and you know swoop and maybe like do the little spin in the air to get all the coins. I mean, there's some pretty decent one-tap games out there, and yeah. if Mario is in this game, you know they're going to release it in a solid state. I mean, this is not some outsourced thing. Like, I don't, you know, Niantic is, was an outsourced thing, and it did all right with Pokemon Go, but this is Mario, so they're going to do it in-house, they're going to keep it real, and they're going to release it when it's finished. I have high hopes for it. I mean, I, I don't, can't say that I play that many iOS, iOS games anymore, but for w- the times that I do, I, this is probably going to be the one that I go to. Um, that maybe you guys aren't. Yeah, huge what's in- wrong with one tap games? I'm I'm yeah, not I'm not understanding the hate. There's it, te- Temple Run, which is like the greatest one tap tap game ever. It, it's not Pokemon that I'm anti one tap games. I'm just like if I for Mario's debut on a on a whole new platform. What would you have? I them wanted do? something more full feature. Like what? But then it would have to use a gamepad. Like you have, they have to embrace. Nintendo yeah, it has knows to be interface. the mobile interface. No, yeah. Nintendo knows interface better than anybody, so that they because re- they've innovated probably better than the other platforms. They really care about it, um, so they looked at touch and, or uh, you know phones, and they said, "Well, we don't want to cover the screen with people's fingers. We don't want to require a gamepad, so we'll just do something really simple." Now, maybe if it pays off for them, they'll, they'll experiment further. Um, I'm happy about that. Unfortunately, like that's the most happy I was the entire event. Is this your general <laughs> feeling too, Annalie? That the uh, that this was underwhelming. The, I mean, it was underwhelming. The the doubling down on the watch was just, you know, what what the hell? I, yeah. I mean, no nobody wants that watch, and yet, and you know, it it just felt like pushing more of the thing that we're all least excited about. And and frankly, the watch is still basically. A test case, you know, it's kind of okay. Here's the things you could do with a watch if it really worked, or if there really were a lot of apps for it um, that were fully integrated with each other. And so, it, I don't know. I just, yeah. Right, so let's talk about the specifics. I, I don't want to alarm you, but Jeremy has a watch on right now. You know, I mean, and that's fine. Hey, if I did, like, we'd just be one sided here. This is the nice thing about panels. <laughs> Yes, this is your week. I had my week last week. So this is—they're calling it the Series Two. It has basically the same footprint design as the first Apple Watch, which apparently is the Series One now. 
Um, it is, uh, except they've added, the main new feature is uh, GPS. So everyone, which we all kind of, people, if you follow the Apple blogs, everyone kind of anticipated. So now, um, you know, I guess, I guess the use case is if you don't have your phone, it knows exactly where you are, and you can go on a run, and it can be very accurate. Um, I'm, I, I don't personally do that. I use it for some fitness stuff, but it's, it's either at the gym or, you know, in like badminton. So I'm not doing a whole lot of GPS activities. Um, I got to say, though, in true Apple fashion, I was blown away by the one use case where they talked about going hiking offline mm-hmm. using the GPS. And I was like, I would totally use that two days out of the year. I mean, like, there's that there's that part that doesn't work. But and I thought that yeah. feature and um, the way they showcased it was yeah. in beautiful Apple style. And I, I I thought that was a great inter- integration of the watch's GPS in a way that would actually benefit my life. But isn't this so, really only useful if you don't have your phone? I mean, would you go no, on that hike if, without your phone? No, but if you're in Yosemite... Yeah. Uh, you, it, it was the offline nature, and like you don't want to get out your phone while you're hiking. You don't need it. Though. Why not? You, I mean, but your phone, why, your why watch syncs with your phone. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I do that all the time. Offline maps on my phone. Like I don't I don't mind reaching into my pocket. It's not. It, it isn't really that much harder than looking at my wrist. But so. you can get like tap through details on the waterfall that you see it. You like that part, did you? I I'm I'm being a little facetious about it, but like I did. I thought that the presentation, that was the only place in the presentation where I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. I liked the integration of Pokemon Go with fitness features. Because I, I, no, I mean, I do because I, I actually, for real, I mean, I wear a Fitbit and, and I often do kind of look at it and look at my Pokemon Go scores at the same time. I, I've definitely, I mean, I think a lot of us have said to ourselves, well, but this game allows us to go outside and move around. So it's not like those other dastardly games where we sit on the sofa all the time and just move our fingers. And so, um, so it kind of made sense to me that that would be integrated. It's like further gamification of, ex- of exercise, which is great. It totally works for me. Um, as for the actual functionality of it, no. I yeah. mean, it, it felt to me, again, like I said before, like it was sort of saying, this is how we imagine apps would work together once we have enough apps to make this really make sense. So I liked the idea that you could take a game and integrate it with fitness. Um, it seemed like a good um, suggestion to future developers of ways they could think about how they want to integrate with the functionality of the watch. But um, am I really going to play Pokemon Go on an Apple Watch? No. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, which is I'm going to look at my Fitbit and I'm going to look at my phone and I'm going to, you know, do it that way. And I don't I don't see that as being that much of a problem. Yeah. I, I think it's a little strange that the, you can't just use the watch with Pokemon Go either. Like, you still have to use the phone. It's really just a little alert system. Um, yeah. I mean, well, odd. you can see your little Pokemon on the watch. Right. I like you that. Can't, you can't catch ones. Like, if you go to a new stop, I guess you can spin the Pokestops and get the little items. Yeah. And that's a significant. That's significant. Yeah. But I think, I, I mean, until you can have a, a watch without a phone, why are we doing this? Well, and that's, that was the big rumor is that they lost the momentum or the contracts. They couldn't pull it off to actually have cellular built into this version of the watch. Mm-hmm. And so if that's true, they, internally, all they had left to fall on was the GPS feature. Uh, and we, we hopefully would be looking forward to full cellular features next year. I have to say, though, I'm used to Apple being slightly ahead of the curve. And it felt like the amount of time they devoted to Pokemon felt like they were just missing a wave. Yeah. 
And like, oh, right, because it's already Because Pokemon's peaked. already peaked, There's already... and it's kind of in de- decline a yeah. little bit. And to spend whatever, it was like 10 minutes. I felt on, like that's how I that. felt about a lot of the presentations. That it was a two-hour event. It wasn't a whole lot of meat here. Um, anyway, it has a 2x faster GPU. Um, it has a 50% faster dual-core processor. It's now more waterproof, so it can now go down to 50 meters. If you're a swimmer, it looks kind of cool because it actually will count your laps in the pool. That, I thought, was interesting. I mean, that your hand is moving so much while swimming, they must be doing some interesting calculations to actually detect when you turn and spin around 180 degrees. Well, the GPS is going to help with that, too. But internally, like in a, in a swimming in pool, a pool, you would have to be outdoors for GPS to work. Right, that's true. <clears throat> I was imagining I guess an, an outdoor, outdoor pool, pool. They do have those. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I grew up in California, so I was like, what, right. what is this indoor pool that you speak of? Um. <laughs> my, my kids do swim lessons in an so indoor pool. is it, and the watch squirts water out? That was my favorite thing I about the that, watch. I want that integrated with Pokemon. <laughs> Pokemon right. so squirt. To explain, they talked a lot about how they redesign like the O-rings and the seals to make this thing waterproof. But there's one place you can't make it waterproof, which is the speaker, mm-hmm. because it needs air to run. And they showed how the speaker, when it's submerged in water, will essentially the cavity will fill up with water. And then the speaker itself will come on after you emerge out of the water and use... Um, it's vibration and air pressure to push the water out of the speaker holes. That's pretty neat. It's pretty badass. I think that's awesome. I, it was my favorite thing of the entire Apple presentation. I was I, like, yeah. what is this? Yeah. I I, I can't imagine it's going to work perfectly. <laughs> but it's nice because, um, you know, Internet of Things or connected devices or whatever the heck we're going to call it um, – you know, that's the kind of thing that we actually should be seeing innovated, you know, is like, how can we keep things dry using weird um, devices like speakers? You know, I, I like that. It was it felt uh, it felt cool. Yeah, it feels like a dog getting out of the tub mm-hmm. and having to shake it all off. Yeah, it felt like a, an unexpected weird thing that they had done. Um, unexpectedly, they are keeping the old watch. So you'll be able to get that for a hundred bucks less. And they're upgrading the processors on that. So if you don't care about GPS, there's now a much better deal than the Apple Watch. Um, How much, Jeremy? Two hundred and uh, sorry. Well, the, the old watch with the dual core will be two sixty nine. The new watch three sixty nine. Plus, there's the new uh, Nike version. I don't know. There's like a whole other version of the watch with Nike features and a special Nike design. Um, and you know, I don't know. That's not for me. I'm not a runner. But I guess if you're a runner, that also will cost three sixty nine. So as somebody that has what is now essentially the Series 1 watch. Yeah. Do you see any reason to upgrade? You know, I re- I'm having a hard time with it. Because um, I, I, what I understand is I actually haven't upgraded to the new um, iOS 10s, the new OSs across my ecosystem. Um, and from what I understand, like, that is great. Like, so the watch stuff especially, they've completely redesigned. They've rethought what the buttons do, some of the interfaces. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that much more so than I would be the new hardware. Um, and that all comes out um, this month. Gosh, they did announce the iOS release date, um, th- September 13th. So that's just a few days away. Um, so moving on from the Apple Watch. Now that you've gotten our meh on the watch, <laughs> our official <sighs> meh review. Yeah, you know, I'm hoping, like, I really thought the first watch would be the ugly one. And then, like, they iterate so quickly in the early versions of, of hardware. You, I would thought the next watch would have been exciting and thin and beautiful. And it just isn't yet. So, you know, one more year, hopefully. Uh, the iPhone 7. 
surprise, like we heard that they would not be changing much. Like the, the, most of the industrial design would remain the same. There's one thing we've been talking about too much that we one, knew was going to change. One thing that was banned from this show from discussion, <laughs> which we now have to discuss. Uh, we'll get Sadly. to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. But they did actually, it is a slightly different design. It's more, cur- there's more curvature around the phone. Uh, it's now more of a unibody design. The, the lens area has a curvature around it. Um, but it is. it also now comes in a new color. They have a new finishing technique. They call it jet black. By the way, the jet black version only comes in the larger capacities. It's very that's strange. Um, so they have a shiny black, a matte black, and then the silver and gold and what else? Another one. Um, the the new home button. I guess that's like the most exciting thing to me about it. It has. It's they've completely redesigned it. It's force sensitive. It's solid state. It's a taptic home button, not unlike the new MacBook Pros. Do you, either of you have a new? Is that a new MacBook Pro? No. Have you heard about the new touchpad? Where yeah. it's it's you, it, when you tap it, it feels like you're pressing, but it doesn't. Like it just pushes back on you in a taptic kind of way. It mm-hmm. feels really cool. So I'm kind of excited about that to be able to make different um, sensations when you touch the home button. But I touch the home button so rarely. That's the thing. It's like they ha- they use the home button for so much. That you may- want to try? Maybe it, it'll, it'll be useful. Ooh. Oh, is this a new MacBook? Yeah. Oh, you've got it. Um, just press down. It has it's uh, water. It's- that force that I can't you're feeling? even tap it though. Why do they call it taptic if I have to well, push it? Taptic is the is the haptic feedback engine. <laughs> I know, but I want to I want to tap. But I if you press it down, push. you feel a little bit like it's depressing. No, it does. Yeah, for sure. Not. It feels just like I mean, here I have a an old school yeah, air. Yeah, me too. Um, it feels the same way. But on this one, you can tap. Sorry, I don't mean to be harping on that, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into the semantics this one goes of the to name of this engine. <laughs> um, so the, the, it's now waterproof and much like the watches, it's uh, also dustproof, which is that's kind of interesting given that I imagine so there was this little bit of Apple revenue water, coming from repairs. Water resistant. The same as the watch, yeah. but that's, that's a technicality because they, they can't call it waterproof since it's this level of water resistance, which is a 50 meter water resistance. I mean, that's pretty substantial. Um, it's, it's essentially waterproof. So if you drop your phone in the lake you're probably out of luck anyway but if it goes in a pool or bathtub you're fine mm-hmm. or toilet which or is toilet more realistic yeah scenario. right has that happened to you i mean it hasn't it happened to everyone it's happened I, to someone it happened yeah. it's ha- i mean i'm not saying it was me but <laughs> <laughs> someone yeah um but the camera was the big the big um improvement as always uh, especially with these uh i guess usually the cameras come on the s cycles so I'll be cur- it'll be interesting to see what they do next year. But the um, this camera is now optical Im- image stabilized on both versions. So that was the big one. If you got the plus last time, or the well, yeah the plus version, the large is that what they call it? S. Yeah. So there's a, there's the S's and the pluses. Now I'm getting confused. Mm-hmm. No, this we're on the plus we're on the cycle. Pluses. Yeah, seven and right. seven plus. Right. So the larger phone, the plus. Uh, if you got that one last year, it was image stabilized. Now it is even on the the, the standard version. Um, it's also, of course, and the OIS is great. It was it was great on the six plus when we tried it out on yeah. Norm's phone. It works if you take a lot of uh, photos. I think it's a great feature for it to extend to both both models. It's great. It, it's it's good for it improves low light photography, but it won't help if your subject is moving. Like you're going to do a longer exposure, which by definition means if your subject is moving, it's going to get blurry. So yeah, it'll it'll help, but it, it will only help stabilize your hand, not the subject matter. Just keep that in mind. Um, it has a F one eight um, 
aperture, uh, ha- 60% faster um, sensor, brighter flash. It now has a raw API, which I think Norm's going to be interested in. He loves shooting raw whenever possible. So now third parties will be able to use the raw um, data. Um, has a higher res FaceTime camera. I don't think many people care about that. Like five megapixel was enough. Now it's seven. Um, but the, so the big improvement is with the plus model. So this had, this is the, the technology that we've been hearing about, uh, that was rumored. I think they bought a company that actually, where they got all this technology from, it is a two sensor camera. There are actually two lenses, one that's wide angle, one that's telephoto. And by default, it just uses the one. It just uses the wide angle. That's your 1X. And if you tap this little new button that's on the screen, you'll switch lenses and you'll go to the telephoto. So you can essentially get um, an optical zoom in a sense, but only to these, like it's binary. You can get one or the other. And you, can't, you can't zoom between them. Um, but they, are, they've, they like this so much that now you can get so much closer with optical, they've improved the digital zoom to like a 10X. So they showed on screen, you know, that you could get quite close to subjects, and it, it looks cool. But the neat feature about this, in my mind, is this new portrait mode. Did you guys see this? Um, so if you, there's now a new setting if you go to the camera where instead of panorama, instead of, um, you know, movie or slow-mo, there's a new one called portrait. And that will use both sensors to detect depth, in a sense. So they'll be able to scan the image, and this is really disintended for portraits, and you can take a picture, and if and it will detect where the person is, and it will make keep them in focus, but then detect what's behind them and blur that out, just as if you shot on a larger SLR full frame camera, that kind of thing, to create this bokeh effect in the background. Now that's something that you just can't do with a with a lens by itself on a cell phone. Just physics get in the way. Um, but I have high hopes for this to actually, because I feel like the point and shoot market has largely been converted to cell phones at this point. This is a chance, maybe generations from, a generation or two from now, when this really becomes good, if it's, you know, we'll see how it is this year, um, that it could actually start to diminish the SLO market. So it's only been a couple hours since this came out. Uh, so I haven't seen any reactions from photographers. How into photography are you guys? I'm definitely not. Uh, yeah. I have, an not S- I have a, an SLR. I have a full frame now. I just got the new Sony. Um, Would this make you question... Uh, buying uh, an SLR? Are we at that point yet where this will do what you're saying? Well, I got it because I needed to shoot um, photos for my kids' school. I needed to archive their, the artwork that's on the walls. And I, I think I still want my a nice camera for that. Um, but in terms of like hobbyist people who just who get an SLR to do family photos, I think this that could diminish this. I really do, um, especially if if it, if it works. I mean, no, and by the way, this is not a feature that's going to be ready at launch. Um, that was unanticipated. We assumed that it would be. It's it's going to be a free feature that they're going to release later this year as a download. And I would say as a non-photographer, I mean, I use my iPhone 6 for uh, my journalism. When I go out on site, I'm using it to do video, and it's completely replaced a camera for me. I do have an SLR, um, I mean an old one, um, and it's. I would way rather use the iPhone at this point, so... Was there anything in this that makes you want to upgrade your camera, though? It was the camera, and that was the one thing that I, I mean, I was talking about this with my colleagues at Ars Technica, and we were all kind of agreeing, like, wow, maybe we kind of do want to upgrade because the camera is so great. And, um, you know, maybe one day I'll actually use the phone as a phone. Right. I mean, I sometimes switch over to it when I, when I want to, but 
I just like the Android. There's, a, there's Go ahead. I was just going to say, I feel like the uh, the portrait mode was, was great. I don't know about the use case of that with, like, the depth of field. How often hobbyists are even going to use that? I think the zoom is probably where it's at. Yeah, the zoom, I agree. Uh, because you get 2x optical and then up to 10 using their yeah. sort of software capability. Up, up from 5 in the And so yeah. digital zoom has always stunk. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just zooming in on pixels. But there's a way, at least in their demo, it showed that because it was stitching together two pictures, essentially, that you get better um, you get a better digital zoom experience mm. than what you've had in the past. I'm just excited about the, the portrait mode from a tech standpoint because it, it's kind of magic that they're sensing depth using these two lenses. And I, I just I dig the engineering behind that. And I think that there's a lot of room for improvement in it, too. Um, and so I'll, I'll be curious to see how good that bokeh effect is. Currently, like if you try to use your iPhone to shoot something that's really close to the camera and you tap on it to focus on it, you can get a blurred out background. And it, it looks pretty great. Like when we first were able to start doing that, I was like, that's amazing that a phone can even do that. So if we can now do that easier and better, um, I'm, I'm super excited about that. That's one of the things I like so much about the full frame cameras is that effect. Also um, great yeah. for selfies. Well, <laughs> Yeah, the field <laughs> selfie. Yes, I kept, as you were talking about that, and you're giving the whole, you know, beautiful, eloquent yeah. tale of of how this is going to give us perfect portraits. I was like, yeah, it's going to be for selfies. Well, <laughs> I mean, those are the portraits of today. All right, that's that's where we're at. I think you you're probably right. It's only a matter of time before that is on the front of the phone too. Like literally, that will be the what makes selfies look awesome. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's fine. <God. laughs> It's um, all going to be okay. It has stereo speakers. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm a kind of an audio nut in some ways that apparently other people aren't. Excuse you. Speaking of <laughs> speakers. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I'm excited about that. Um, I read somewhere that they are using the one of the microphones uh, ports as a speaker as well. Um, that was like one of those things that were rumored from one of the suppliers. I'm not sure if that's what they ended up doing. But I think that's cool. I know it's a very small thing and maybe stereo won't matter to a lot of people, but I, I dig it. Um, but it's going to be interesting because I wonder if it'll flip the left and the right. It must. It must base it on which how it should be. So like if you flip your, flip your phone around, it'll swap the image and do the right sound. I don't, I, I don't want to be snarky because be snarky. You know, there's too many people that are snarky about like tech launches. But this is the feature I was like, this is the most worthless thing I heard. What, stereo well, speakers? Yeah, the stereo speaker. Uh, see, I, I know some people don't care. That's yeah, fine. I, just because it's like, I, do I need stereo over five inches? Like, it's Why such a not? small area. No, no, I, I dig it. <laughs> I dig it. I think it's, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything bad about it. I mean, if you can do it, do it. I, it's not going to, I don't think anyone's going to buy it for that. Have you ever, no. Have you ever mixed audio before? You know, you, like, I mean, have you recorded musicians and mixed a, a song or something like that? No. Because, um, like, that's, having done that before, I care. Like, I know how much thought engineers put into, sound engineers put into where the sound is spatially that i i want to at least respect that with a stereo yeah signal. when you crush it down to mono it's just sad yeah, yeah. it's just yeah unless it's a beatles album in which yeah. case those were the original mixes yeah exactly unless <laughs> yes unless it was original to mono right. um which is nothing now so um so all right kishore what was that topic that we couldn't ever talk about on the podcast it's okay i'm okay i steeled myself for this day to come that one day we would live in a post-headphone jack world. <laughs> you don't, right? you got a headphone jack. No, because I live in the sensible world where people have invested a lot in headphones, and we don't want to see that headphone jack leave. You know what you lack? 
courage. Yeah. <laughs> courage and a vision of tomorrow. All right. <laughs> Phil Schiller had the unenviable duty of going up on stage and um, pitching this to the world of why we needed to lose the headphone jack. And that's what he said. He said the reason Apple's doing it is really threefold, and it's, a, it's about courage, uh, people, because we had to um, – we wanted additional features, for one. Like we, wa- we needed – I don't even remember the example that they gave, but if, if we have a lightning jack connector for our headphones, then we can use the data on the phone to control more about how it sounds, I guess. Um, we have space issues because there's just not enough space in the phone to add new hardware with that big jack there, right? So we can find everything in Lightning, then we can add more features. Anyone convinced yet? No. no. I mean, this is USB-C all over again. I mean, they want it to be wireless. They want us to buy new headphones, right? I mean, that's really, I mean, this is such, this is a classic Apple move. You know, we had to do this. This is us being courageous. This is you buying a pair of, what is it, $150 for five hours of, of headphone? That would be on sale. That would be on sale. <laughs> I think they're actually at 100. They're 159 They were 159 Yeah, 160 So, you know. 159 Yeah. Sorry, 159 Um, I'm dubious. It's so, I keep Every time I hear AirPod, I keep wanting to call them AirBuds. Did you guys ever see the movie AirBud? I have seen the movie AirBud. <laughs> basketball playing dog. It, yeah, it's the best <laughs> dog basketball movie out there. Right. And so I'm just, I'm just going to call these AirBud in right my on. mind. I think, I think that's where we need to go. I, I, I think you're right. They want us to buy those headphones. But I think even more than that, this is like they get a licensing fee every time somebody uses the lightning connector. You can't use it. You can't build your own lightning connector without licensing that spec from Apple. Yep. So, like, that's a lot of money. And they have this new wireless uh, spec, too. What's, what's up with that? Well, they have their own chip now. The their W1. own? Right. Yeah. I think that's just their own hardware. So they're introducing that. I'm sure next year we'll see the W2. Let's get into it. we got to talk about the wireless because I was actually – so as for as much as I've hated on the headphone jack anyway. Yep. Part of the reason I talked about it uh, going away being problematic is I think the experience of wireless with your phone stinks, has largely stunk. Like the idea of pairing and repairing and and distance and connectivity Mm. has not been very seamless. And if Apple does get credit for doing things right, it's that their user experience is usually, um, you know, bar none. So let's get into these wireless earbuds. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally calling them that. All right. <laughs> well, so this is a separate product. This does not come with the phone. This is if you want to have wireless earbuds, earbuds, you you pony up 159 bucks and you get these what look like the ends of the original Apple earbuds that just have the wires cut off, and they have a bunch of sensors in them. They can tell when they've been inserted into your ear, and they turn on. They have microphones built into them. They have like for some reason they have dual accelerometers. I didn't get that. I think I think that must be for future applications. Yeah, because maybe it can be yeah. used as part of a fit, fitness type thing, or yeah, I don't know. Maybe par- like I'm like nodding to Siri uh, or something. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, nodding and shaking cool. your head. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So you're or just again, like if it's an accelerometer, it can be telling you like you're walking. I mean, I don't know why you would want that though, because you already have that in your phone or your watch. 
or your butt. <laughs> well, it, or it can measure the force that you use to take it out of your ear and throw it at the wall. <laughs> it doesn't I, somebody, work. Well, they're so small. Like I saw somebody on Twitter say they've already lost two of them. They haven't even bought them yet. Yeah, that's my uh, chief concern about these is they are small. And uh, <laughs> I love uh, earbuds. I use That's my primary headphone. They fall out all the time. Mm. Yeah. And and everyone will tell you, like, oh, I have weird ears. That's the thing. Everyone's ears are weird. They're all a little bit different. So I'm really interested to see fit um, and how well they they stay in because uh-huh. they are going to be really easy to lose. Especially with the little dangly bit sticking out, right? Like, so anytime yeah. you even move your head around, it might catch on your collar. They're not deep inside your ear. It's not like a right. hearing aid. You wouldn't want to like lay on a pillow with these on. No, I, I you, no, you're not going to do that. I mean, it's interesting that they didn't even go with sort of an over-the-ear kind of your classic, um, you know, Bluetooth kind of setup. That it's just yeah, we've made these as losable as possible. Is that a word, losable? I thought that the case was cool. Like the case was cool. So the the little <laughs> Apple, what do they call them? A- AirPods. They have five hours of listening charge built into them. And when you run out of charge, if you put them back in the case, which looks like a tiny little. I don't know, it's smaller than the case for the original Apple earbuds. Um, you can, they recharge in the case. The case is a battery pack, and the case can hold 20, uh, what? It was like 24 hours. 24 hours of listening power in there. I thought that was neat. That was a good use of the case. You won't lose the case because you'll be using it. Uh, the case seemed great, and then they showed how you essentially have to pair this once with the case. You like that pair? Yeah, the pairing was good. No. Pairing one time, I'm fine with. Yeah. And, but they said, like, you don't have to worry about auto connection. You don't have to hit anything. Yeah. It just does it. You put it next to your phone, you open the case, and then you just hit connect on your, on your phone. Done. If, if that's the way it actually works. Great. Um, that's fine. Yeah. All right. So that's the AirPods. But the, as far as the phone, it actually ships with lightning earbuds and an adapter for your 3.5 millimeter phono jack. <clears throat> Year. So that, you know what I kind of wish that they would do is just have like a big bucket in Apple stores. People can just go grab a handful of these adapters and plug them into all of their headphones because that's what I would want. Because I'm not, I mean, I'm, the chances of me having this adapter on hand when I need it are slim to none. Yeah. I'm, I'm not excited about this, people. Um, what else do we got? We got, so the. Let's talk about the innards. Yeah, the so, so there's a new chip, of course, they call it the A10. It's a quad-core processor. They've extended the battery life, but uh, not necessarily with a bigger battery. They have now a new thing in there where there's this quad-core, but two of the cores are high efficiency, and two of them are high performance. So it'll use whatever it should. Then there's like this you know, police chip in there that decides what processes get put on what cores. So apparently they're saying, quote, longest battery life ever in an iPhone. So that's good. Uh, has a fa- 50% faster GPU, of course. It can support 400 flying monkeys in the Wizard of Oz game. Uh, it's a lot of flying monkeys. And I, that's, that's it. Prices to be expected, $649 for the iPhone 7. Actually, it's a little less than I predicted. I, I, we were chatting along as the thing was going. I thought it was going to be an $800 phone. Well, the, uh, the, for the, the plus. plus, the plus is seven sixty nine. That's eight hundred. Come on! And they have um, doubled all the capacity. <laughs> so long, thank God. Long yeah, gone. no sixteen, 16 gig- gigabyte. Quick joke up there when he threw it up on the screen. I bet you those pictures are going to eat up that thirty two gig like it's nobody's business. So 
even the 32 is going to be obsolete real quick. Yeah, if you're using it for photos, I mean, you can always do the iCloud thing where everything is just backed up. But um, honestly, I've always thought it was interesting that the lowest capacity requires the most tech-savvy. Um, pre-order start, same as, as the watch, September 9th, available on the 16th. Uh, the AirPods, the AirBuds are available late October. So final thoughts on this Apple event? You know, I've, I've owned every single Apple, every single phone that they've made. Um, and I've done that. I haven't been sure I wanted to do that the past few U.S. cycles. But this is the first year I'm thinking, ah, if I do it, it's really just out of, like, some sort of technical problem that I have. Um, <laughs> look, at, look at your, like, body language as you're saying this. Like, uh, I guess. Uh, I mean, it's just there's not a whole lot of sexy there, and I'm losing the headphone jack, and I am not convinced by their arguments. I was, I was, that was the one. I was curious to see how they would spin it. Like, because they can't say it's losing anything. It has to be a feature. Um, and so I just don't know. I just don't know. I, I'm curious about the camera, but only on the bigger one. So not only would I have to upgrade the phone to something I'm not terribly excited about, but I have to get the big one, and I like my small phone. Annalie? I am also not really convinced. Um, I mean, I've already admitted I'm an Android person anyway. But, uh, you know, I might. I might for the camera. We'll see. Maybe the, wait to the next S cycle, though. I think. Yeah, I, I still have the six, and I'm 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 good with that. You know. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's basically a seven hundred seventy dollar really nice camera with a phone attached to it. Yeah, uh, and it's just it's just too much for me to jump the hurdle. Uh, I'm intrigued by the wireless headphone software. I'm less convinced about the earbuds. The wireless headphones will presumably work with the older phones. So you could use you could go ahead and experience that. Do you have an iPhone? You have an iPod. No, my iPad? wife has an iPhone. Okay. Uh, so I'm actually not as sour on this whole event as I thought I was going to be going in, given all the rumors and stuff. Uh, because the camera, if it does hold the potential, they say, is a pretty important upgrade. Mm-hmm. I and I think if the dual lenses does take hold, I might be a buyer like Annalie uh, come the S cycle. Especially if that dual camera rolls out to the other models. That's what I want. I want it on a smaller phone. Yeah, I think I might be um, in at that point, hoping that you know some other progresses are made. Uh, but it what it's not in their top tier of announcements ever, for sure. And there were no other announcements. That was it. We got a um, an encore performance by was Sia. Um, we did sure. we didn't yes, lovely we, we didn't see any um, anything about the new at MacBooks which that would have had at least some interesting technology if they put that touchpad across the top I, I'm curious or even how, talked how, about ARM processors they use which that. they haven't mm-hmm. um, one day you know that they'll announce a touch screen um, but I don't expect that this year that's not happening it's, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah not they're happening. the they only gotta ones, compete with the surface they're the only ones left <laughs> on the planet not making a touch screen I um, you know laptop they've got to do it anyway. Um, that was it for the Apple event. Let's move on to Sony. Do either of you own a PlayStation 4? I have a PS3, 2, and 1. Wow. That's old, right. Old school. <laughs> What's your favorite PlayStation 1 game? Ooh, uh... Oh... It's all like a blur because like my favorite PlayStation game of all time was Final Fantasy VII on the PS2. No doubt. Okay. No doubt. But I'm trying to remember what I even had on the one. I never had a PlayStation 1 or 2. Um, but I, did, I rented them and I played uh, Ridge Racer and I loved it. I'm a big fan of driving games and that 
I love that the skidding uh, mechanic they had in that. But I essentially, I bought the three because it was going to be that. Me- it was also going to be a media station um, before media state. Me like all these other devices like Roku's and what were on the market. Yeah. Uh, and then when the four came out, I was like, meh. It was like it just there wasn't there anything there for me. Mm-hmm. Are you a gamer, Annalie? Uh, not really. I mean, on my phone, you know, yeah. like I can totally like kick your ass at Temple Run. <laughs> 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 Pokemon Go, I'm there. But yeah, I'm not really. I don't do a lot of console gaming. Yeah. I'm mostly just watching you have a PS4. TV and movies. <laughs> you have a PS4, though, do you? Yeah, I do. tell us. Uh... I do. Yeah. And it gets hot. Like we have it in a cabinet and I hear the fan on all the time. It gets, it gets super hot in there. So I'm a little intrigued by the new PS4. They, they, it is not the slim. It is just PS4. And that was the qu- real quick off the bat announcement they had today. Um, it's going to be available this month, right? Um, almost everywhere. Next week. Next week. And it, it's just, that's the new PlayStation. You go to buy in a PS4, you're going to get this one. It looks remarkably small. I mean, it, we didn't get a good look at it. There's a couple promotional shots. I mean, it's not much bigger than like a handful of controllers. I mean, it's a tiny little guy. Um, so I'll be curious to see what kind of heat that puts out. 300 bucks. Pretty affordable. Yeah. No reason to buy. Well, no, no, no reason to upgrade. But if yeah, you're, no you're going to PS4 now, it's like, that's an incentive. Like, okay, I get the cool one. Um, and it, presumably it doesn't put out as much heat either. So that would be good for my little cabinet. Um, and it, they didn't announce any new features of it. Like the new Xbox actually supports 4K Blu-ray. Um, presumably this does not. Uh, you didn't see anything about that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so most of the event was spent, um, and this is literally two hours ago. Um, on the PS4 Pro, which is the 4K system. I, My s- favorite part is they use the word hardcore gamers mm. um, as the phrase introducing this thing. Is that so who, they that's definitely for? were slicing the market. They're basically like, if you're a casual gamer, which is basically this end of the table, <laughs> <laughs> you're out. Because this, this, this is not the PS5. No, it's not. It's the PS4.5. They call it the PS4 Pro. Mm-hmm. And it's really about having a 4K system with enhanced GPU. So we'll, we'll go through the specs real quick. They didn't say anything about the GPU outside of it. It's twice as powerful. Mm-hmm. It's twice as powerful, but it has to output four times the pixels. Okay. This so, is true. So I wonder what that means. I, I would need some graphics experts to tell me. Uh, they claimed, they talked a lot about 1080p about how this is going to look incredible on any TNADB screen and surpass it. That I believe, because yeah. they can do super sampling, which is a brute force method of anti-aliasing, where you render at a resolution larger than your screen, and you reduce it to your screen size. And that's, like, if you want something to look great in Photoshop, I know that's how you do it. In real time, it probably looks just as good. They talked about HDR being in this console. If you have an HDR screen, great. Mm-hmm. And it has a one terabyte one terabyte hard drive. That was pretty much it for the specs that we mm-hmm. got from this thing. Uh, I love, it's not I, a true 4K console. Why not? Well, I mean, because is it outputting? Is, because the G, GPU doesn't mm-hmm. seem powered up enough to handle the 4K. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, the uh, assume. That, I mean, I think it is going to obviously output output 4K. I just don't yeah. know what that's going to mean to developers if they're going to have to actually scale back a little bit or if things will be up you know maybe they'll render somewhere between 1080 and 4k and then up it to that I, I bet it'll look better but my problem is like the difference between 1080 and 4k i have a 4k tv i had to, i bought a new tv because our old tv died um and it's 4k tvs are they're they're what you buy now like if you go to best buy that's what's on the wall and um it's not the difference that dvd to blu-ray was 
it's it's beautiful, but it is it, it is a, we've passed the point of diminishing returns after 1080p. Though to be honest, the they showed some demos. Mm-hmm. The Spider Man they showed a Spider Man game, Watch Dogs Two, which is set in San Francisco. Um, Spider Man especially looked great. Well, how can you really tell? Yeah, and that's the thing. I was watching on Twitch, so I was like, yeah. how can I really tell? <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem with these technologies. Both 4K and HDR are hard to convey over any streaming network because I guarantee everyone's watching it on 1080p or less, and no one's getting yeah. watching it in HDR because the streams don't support that. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that they would do these A-B comparisons. <laughs> At home, we're like, what? I don't, I don't see it. Buy now, <laughs> find out later. <laughs> presumably, the people in the audience could see something, and when you play it in person, you'll see. But this is, this is not unlike VR in the fact that you can't demonstrate this over existing streaming is, Speaking of VR, did they say anything about PSVR at all? They only said that it would that the extra power of the Pro would be at the developer's disposal to do whatever they wanted. So the same type of things, better pixel clarity um, or um, higher frame rates. Now, that's, that's an important thing. Like, if they can, you need that. Um, I think they're rendering at 90 on the PlayStation VR. Um, you need those those frames, so that'll be a good thing. I could see a lot of people upgrading if they are into the PlayStation VR, but it won't require it. So PlayStation VR will work fine on PlayStation 4, at least, you know, as fine as whatever Sony says is good enough. 400 bucks, which is what we thought it would come out at. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I did like is there is a firmware update going out to all the other PS4s for HDR support. Next week. So that's great, actually. Because my TV supposedly supports some some level of HDR, I'd be curious to see what that means. And they're include they're, they're calling f- uh, this feature of the Pro- PlayStation Pro forward compatibility, where some of the older games will be re- released or repatched, so that they take advantage of the new tech. Uh, so nothing surprising. We knew all of this information before uh, this event happened. Mm-hmm. I will say though, Apple I think should take a little page out of PlayStation because this was like a half hour. Hit the ground it running. It was just like, hey, done. here's the here's the new PlayStation. Here's the new PlayStation Pro. We'll see you later. It was it was uh, like I felt like that Apple event could have been condensed in the same way. Oh Didn't Apple used to do much shorter, yeah. like snappier? Like this is starting to turn into like yeah. I don't know, like a Microsoft event, you know, where it's like five hours of like, and now here's you our know, new Windows. I system. felt like the intro was particularly Microsofty when when Tim Cook was in the car with the late night host. Yeah. You know, it was just very corny. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it was been it was dad humor. Yeah, you know, and yeah, it, exactly. this, is, this is the dad humor era at Apple, which is it's not a good look for them <laughs> <laughs> well but um so yeah i guess that's uh that's it are you gonna buy one of these new playstations nope all right and i mean i say for the same reason i i mentioned last week we're in the 4.5 territory with both of these i'm gonna wait annalee i'm waiting all right you are wait but you might get what play, playstation 5 maybe i might jump on it depends yeah right. if there's temple run on it you're there <laughs> Pokemon Go, man. I'll just like tuck the whole PlayStation in my backpack. It'll be great. (laughs) Now it's time for a moment of science. I am so happy to have Annalie here for a moment of science because she's going to drop better science knowledge than me. (laughs) <laughs> Not to set it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we have a I'm lot ready. of stuff to I know. go through this week. So much news. Hey, when when you lose stuff in the verse, there's only one person to call up or one agency to call up when you're looking for it. And that's NASA. <laughs> or ESA. Or ESA. Yeah. Okay, fine. Or ESA. JAXA. Yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just abbreviate universe as verse? Yeah. Yeah. Firefly. Hello. Fine. No, I don't remember that from Firefly. Get- 
Th- is that true? What? In the verse? Yeah, yeah the right. verse. We're going to stop Going out into the black. It's you know, it's, Man, well, yeah, it's time to rewatch this. So show. this week, Isa <laughs> uh, <Issa clears throat> announced they had found something they had lost. Our lovable lander filet. Which kind of bounced around on a comet. Did you yeah, see the pictures, Annalise? I did see the pictures. It was fantastic. It was great because a lot of the pictures that they're showing, um, which are from um, you know Rosetta, uh, one of Rosetta's cameras, they're sort of like those pictures you see when people say, we found a face on Mars. You know, there's a lot of circles <laughs> and arrows yeah. and like, yes, this is definitely it. But it's real. You know, It really is um, filet. Um, it's fantastic because we didn't have any visual confirmation of what we knew from uh, getting information back and all the sensor readings that we got back from Philae. And so we kind of had us, we thought we knew where it was, but we didn't know for sure. This was the last possible moment that we could have gotten this photograph. And it's just, it's fantastic. It's such good drama, isn't it? It's like we get closure at the last yeah. possible the space moment. Space agencies are the best at drama. They're like the new TNT. They <laughs> uh, but they, so what was amazing is we did figure based on telemetry that it was in a shaded spot. Yes. It was getting no sun because there was essentially no power being delivered to the lander. And we had an idea based on the fact that we knew it had bounced, that it had gone somewhere. So they were looking basically in these like crevasses, canyons. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the technical term is on a, a crack. Yeah. yeah. I, I think they said ca- canyon maybe was the term they were using, but it was on kind of the smaller chunk. There was sort of a bigger side and a smaller side to the comet. Um, and yeah, we found it. It was kind of, it was literally wedged into a crack. Um, and uh, we call that ground truthing when we actually see on the ground with our eyes or with our visual sensors, in this case with our robot, um, you know, that, that we can confirm the data that we've gotten that was not visual. So it's a great triumph. And also it'll help for future missions like this where we can we have now more confidence in our ability to kind of figure out where a lander is based on telemetry that is not visual. For those who are wondering about Philae itself, goodbye. I mean, this was just visual yeah. confirmation that it's not coming it is home. dead and just stuck there. Yeah. So unless like uh, <laughs> something was to come happen to that comet, uh, Philae is just there. Even if it were to get sunlight now and somehow pa- manage to recharge, but it, Rosetta not, won't be there for it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that that's sad but true. Um, but you know, these this is what happens in space. Well, let's keep the sad going then, because we have to talk about the SpaceX explosion, mm. Aww, which was very so devastating. Sad. That happened on was it Friday of last week that it happened? Friday or Saturday? Yes, okay. was, um, yeah. And uh, as they were filling propellant and fuel into uh, the vehicle, uh, it exploded. And you can see uh, footage of the explosion um, where a few days later, we still haven't gotten much of an explanation yet, nor Although should we I love, expect it. Yeah, I love that Elon Musk referred to it as a very fast fire, not an explosion. There actually is a technical difference between a very fast fire and an explosion, um, but would have that would have really only mattered if there were people around, because um, with a fast fire, you can eject uh, people more quickly. Uh, uh, or more, you can actually eject them. They won't just die instantly. We um, should note, no one was hurt. That's right. Uh, the Amos Six satellite, which was a Facebook satellite, uh, lack of <laughs> lack of technical terminology there, uh, was lost during the explosion. And uh, but the more importantly, we don't know uh, what happened to the launch pad. Yeah, we point. don't. It was something to. It was it was a very standard test that's done uh, before a rocket is launched. 
Um, what was unusual is that they actually had the payload on the rocket, which they were doing just to save time. It kind of sounds like everybody was feeling a little bit overconfident. Um, you know, maybe it would have been better to just put in a giant sandbag that was the same weight um, as their payload. Um, and so, you know, obviously, you know, SpaceX has learned from this. But unfortunately, it's a pretty expensive lesson. Facebook had been preparing for this um, mission for over a year and a half. And it's it's quite sad because it was a humanitarian effort. Um, it wasn't a Facebook kind of just wanting to be greedy and do something terrible. They were actually trying to bring Internet to sub-Saharan Africa. So um, that sucks for a lot of reasons that we lost that satellite. The other thing that I think is is interesting that you bring up is why did they sort of put the payload on? Yeah. Because initial reactions right from the explosion is most reporters, and as with any other breaking news, it's usually wrong. What you get, <laughs> what you see right away. Wait, is Twitter, like, Twitter isn't giving me yeah. <laughs> correct information. But most of the reporters, including a lot of like the most experienced space reporters out there, were saying the payload isn't on there because that's the way it's usually yeah, it's done. Yeah, normally not there. But we're in this system right now where there's scheduling for various launches. And there's one this weekend, the OSIRIS mission from NASA is going up um, from Cape Canaveral as well. There's such a tight window that I f- you can feel like the rush to get laun- to get your window right. There isn't a lot of room for failures. And I think that's actually, you know, depending on what the finding is, that's the real story here is how is this going to affect future launches? Because once you miss a window like this and you have to rebuild, if there's something really wrong with the launch pad, it's going to start pushing out everyone. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, but if you look at the flip side, uh, kind of of what you were saying about how, you know, there's all of these launches coming up and you can see why they were kind of cutting corners and wanting to just shave a few hours even off of prep time. Um, You know, this is just another piece of evidence that, you know, commercial space flight really is starting to come into its own. And you don't, you only have an accident like this because there's so much going on, you know, because there's so many launches and there's so many satellites that are, you know, being used by private industry. And so I'm not trying to say this is good. I'm just trying to say this is kind of a sign of the times in terms of where we're at with um, space flight. So hopefully next time, hopefully we'll solve this launch pad problem, the mystery of the launch pad um, and, you know, next time we won't um, destroy uh, satellites that are trying to bring and, humanitarian stuff to Africa. <laughs> and usually we're used to hearing information really quickly from SpaceX and Elon Musk Twitter, you know, feed. I think it's going to be a while before we hear much about this. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm definitely not an expert in sort of launch pad mechanics. Um, it sounded to me like they just wanted to be very careful about figuring it all out before letting us know. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if we heard relatively soon. There's also the liability issue with the actual payload. You know, they're being asked to pay $50 million due to this incident. Yeah. Well, of course, they have billions in contracts lined up, so it, it might be a small drop in the bucket, but still. That's an interesting point, though, because as, again, as commercial space flight becomes more and more common, are we going to start seeing more questions around this liability? Because this company, the Israeli company that um, built the satellite, you know, they built it assuming that then they would get money from Facebook and another group that was licensing the satellite, right? So they're waiting to get that money, and they have to get it launched to get that money. So if SpaceX's launch pad screws it up, like, 
you know, that's an interesting. I'll let the lawyers, the space lawyers, figure it out. I think that's probably going to be one of the more interesting stories that's going to come out of this. Um, let's let's get the rest of our bad news out of the way. Actually, I think what? it's heroic news. We're going to talk about the Duke whistleblower case oh, yeah. before yeah. circling back to more positive things. This is actually one of the more interesting inside baseball cases uh, in science. Uh, a whistleblower at Duke has accused a biologist, um, and this is a former colleague of the bio- uh, biologist name, of falsifying data in grant applications that brought the university $200 million. And this is an interesting case because it is we don't have a ton of whistler, whistleblower cases in science related to fraudulent data. So this is sort of a first-of-its-kind case. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly a first-of-its-kind, but it's close. And so this person is protected under whistle, whistle I can't say that word. Whistleblower laws. Yes. So it'll be... This is one of the more fascinating legal cases in science to watch progress because Duke could be on the hook for paying back uh, this money times a multiple. It's usually about three multiple to pay back to the U.S. government if they're found to have been negligent in this in some way. Uh, But it also uh, underscores I work at a university. How is this going to be perceived by a lot of scientific institutions about the oversight they put in uh, on researchers putting in grants? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There there have been a few other cases. There was a case a few years ago at Harvard with a primate researcher who had faked a lot of data. But the difference that was is really bad. It was a real and it was and there was just a lot of like, oh, I, I recorded it, but I, I guess I put it in my desk and I threw my desk away. I mean, there was a lot of goofy stuff. But the difference is that this is a biologist who is doing biomedical research and so there's a, a lot, there's a bigger impact for the public, um, whereas primate research is usually just um, basic research. Um, so there's not a big impact. And so I think when you start seeing people getting, even if it's a, a small grant, because $200 million is actually a relatively small grant in, in some ways, um, you know, this is, I mean, I think that the general public looks at that and says, wait, so somebody's faking medical data. And, you know, what does that say about the health care that we're going to get down the line? I can't. Was the Harvard case actually protected under whistleblower laws? I don't know. It wasn't a whistleblower case, yeah. but it was a similar case of faked data. And it was brought by a former student. So, yeah, that yeah. is interesting. Yeah, this is the first case because the whistleblower laws mean that the person who brought the case, their identity is protected so they're anonymous special legal protections beyond um their identity being protected yeah um it's interesting because of course anyone who works with this researcher obviously knows who this person is so it's actually even though they are protected by whistleblower laws it's very brave to come forward because your connections to your advisor your connections to your colleagues um really determine whether you get jobs and grants almost assuredly people inside know who this is yeah and so that and because of that like i said i think it took a lot of of courage for this person to come forward um because you know that's that's a lot of money that was coming in from those grants and that person who came forward could have benefited from that money and they chose to do the right thing i would like to think in academia a whistleblower like this would be more of a hero and embraced and easily re re (laughs) re re-employed that is not how academia works (laughs) you are a funny guy (laughs) i wish that that were true like i would love to believe that as well i wish that academia worked like the federation or something like that on star trek but um but no i mean i actually there is you know there's a lot of um you know um people greasing each other's palms with grant money and you know a lot of corruption goes on 
And especially if you're working for a researcher who brings in very lucrative grants, you're depending on that grant money to live. So it's very hard for you to, if you see your PI, your principal investigator doing something fraudulent, that's, you're kind of screwing yourself over too by turning them in. You really have to have a strong ethical sense and, you know, um, really feel like something is going wrong before you're going to step forward. All right. We got to shift to positive realm. Okay. It's, so strike one for the giant pandas. Victory. Yes. We you did are, it. You want to talk about the giant pandas? Um, giant pandas have been are, are no longer on the endangered list, um, which is amazing because it's been it's been a long time that um, you know we've been concerned about about giant pandas and and they're so cute. Um, so everyone everyone is excited. You know, cute it's like an when we say this. like okay here in California, like you know the horned lizard is is endangered, and I don't see anyone anxious to like you know you're not going to get a cute picture of a, of a horned lizard i mean i think they're kind of cute but. uh the numbers are up to over two thousand giant panda cubs that are back in the system and just because i apparently have to be a downer there are warnings though that climate change is going to reduce their bamboo habitat so they may not be off this list for a long period of time but at least right now there's short-term positive news on this now i'm just going to chuck i'm going to call that a victory yes all right this is the story I've been waiting for this entire <laughs> moment of science. Uh, viewers that have been watching this for a while may recall a few weeks ago talking about World War III in the ant world. And one of the best stories on that was written by Annalie and ours. Uh, and now we have an even more bizarre ant story. Yes. So the previous story, if you recall, was about Argentine ants, which are an invasive species um, throughout throughout the world. So this is not an invasive species. These are not ants who are coming to get you. Um, these are wood ants, friendly friends of the forest. Um, they are they create huge nests, just enormous. Um, sometimes networks of nests. And can this you define one, enormous? Um, like several hectares sometimes. So Can you define pe- hectare? So <laughs> look it up. <laughs> why why is it the geoscientists use hectare all the time? It drives me nuts. I just want like can you say square kilometers? I don't know. So they're they're Hectares quite ten thousand square meters. Oh wow. Okay. So yeah, quite they can get quite large. So you know, in this beautiful forest in Poland, a group of, of wood ants set up a very giant uh, colony. Unfortunately, They built their colony on top of a former nuclear weapons bunker (laughs) built by the Soviets. And they built it over top. They didn't know. They They can't read the signs. Poor innocent ants. And it was actually a hidden bunker. Um, Even humans didn't really know about it. And it was was, uh, off limits legally. Um, Unfortunately for these ants, they built on top of a ventilation shaft that had a covering over it. But because the ants were now covering that covering... Uh, it rusted away. So every year during the phase of the ants' um, expansion, like they kind of have periods where they expand and periods where they shrink, um, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of ants fall down this ventilation shaft, five-meter ventilation shaft, into this bunker, and they survive. And they've created this incredible depressing dystopian ant colony down there it's one hesitates even to call it a colony because even though it has about the same number of ants in it as a typical colony like up to maybe a million ants they're not reproducing 
It's just all... There's no queen, right? There's no queen as far as we know. The researchers, um, it was a group of Polish and Finnish researchers who found it. They actually uh, say very... Um, uh, circum- they have this sort of circumspect moment in their paper where they they talk about how there was a semi legal way that they got into the bunker, um, and it apparently had they were apparently led there by another group of zoologists who were studying some bats that live um, in this hmm. bunker as well. So animals have taken up residence there. The sad thing is, so these ants have no queen. So they're not able to reproduce, but they're doing all the typical things that a colony would do. They're building up a mound. Um, they are keeping it clean. They're hunting for food. No one knows what they're eating. These researchers spent two years observing them and could not find a source of food. Uh, but they are dying at um, in numbers that are a bit higher than what you'd expect. And so the thing that's so tragic, and there's great pictures of this that you can see online, is that the entire area around this enormous bunker nest, um, this trapped nest, is just surrounded by an ant graveyard because ants – they're very tidy, and so if an ant dies in the in the colony, they take it outside and they put it on a, a debris pile. Um, and this pile of dead ants actually has created its own ecosystem. It's so big um, that now there's mites living in um, – mites that typically live on ants are now living in this graveyard of dead ants. So one speculation is that maybe the ants are living on the mites that are eating their dead ant friends, oh, that's which is awesome. just – yeah, it's like cannibalism at one yeah. remove, right? Yeah, like I don't we're know eating, if it's awesome, but it's interesting. We're eating the bugs that eat our dead. Um, so that's what's happening down there. And so it's just this really poignant story about how uh, human intervention in the environment has transformed not just human society. You know, the Soviet bunkers were obviously very transformative and the Soviet occupation in Poland was transformative. But it's also transforming insect society. And um, it's kind of a nice little... Um, microcosm of, you know, just trying to understand how, how is it that humans impact the environment? Well, here's a very, very specific example of how we basically created ant hell. It reminded me of the book, uh, The World Without Us, um, mm-hmm. wrote it, Daniel Wiseman or somebody, um, about how if humans just disappeared, what would happen? And it, it just brought up a lot of pictures that came out in that book. Uh, we'll link to Annalie's story in the in the show notes. Can it's I, an incredible tale. Just a quick question. The fall was 500 meters? No, fi- the the ventilation shaft is five meters, and then okay. they fall, you know, a couple more meters to the floor. Okay. And um, a lot of, when I published the story, a lot of readers had questions about, well, why can't the ants just climb back up? And five meters is in a vertical metal shaft. That's a lot for an ant. Like, yeah, if you're the five ants millimeters are, long. Yeah, the ants are able to away. scale the walls, and they are crawling a little bit on the ceiling, but basically they <laughs> can't get back up. And the the researchers said that enough ants are just raining down out of this shaft. They observed it, and they said that's what's replenishing the colony down there. So it's just every year they get new uh, <laughs> new members of their death colony. What's the lifespan of a typical ant? So wood ants apparently typically live for about three years, and the researchers speculate that these ants may only be living for about a year because, again, where yeah. is their food coming from? We don't know. All right. Weirdest story of the week. We have one last story. It is summer here in San Francisco. It may be like, seem like fall everywhere else in the northern hemisphere, but September and October, warmest months of the year here in San Francisco. And clothes are the worst. Am I right? You are right. Yes. I, so, Especially pants. Yeah. Ugh. 
a lot of studies have shown that humans wearing clothes because they clothes absorb radiation and keep it trapped near your skin are about two to three degrees Celsius, important to note, um, warmer than those without. And don't worry, I'm not shedding any clothes here just to stay cool. So don't worry, listeners. (laughs) Um, And so there's been a race to develop new forms of fabric that could potentially be used for clothing that keeps you cooler. For the longest time, we've known about one material that has done this sort of well. Uh, Plastic wrap has always done a great job of transmitting infrared radiation back out. But the problem is it also absorbs visible light and keeps that trapped. So it doesn't really work. But the idea of plastics basically being a barrier to infrared radiation, or at least allowing it to uh, go through, has been an interesting idea. So researchers uh, this week came out with a paper showing they made a fabric, quote-unquote, out of a spun polyethylene um, component that has these really small nano-sized pores in it that was... Uh, small enough to essentially let out the IR radiation so it didn't stay trapped against your skin, but also, um, uh, or large enough to let that out, but small enough to reflect out and scatter visible light as it hit it. So this material appears white because it's scattering all of the light. Uh, and when they put on sort of uh, test conditions of this fabric, it basically was almost imperceptible temperature difference in terms of... Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, there is a video with uh, some 70s music um, that shows a little bit of uh, of the temperature gradient, and it showed almost imperceptible, you know, 0.2 degree centigrade difference in terms of the temperature uh, utilizing this clothing. Wow. So it's like the ultimate technical clothing. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And you would say, like, what's the point? It's like a couple degrees. What's the big deal? And the... I mean, their sort of like example of this and believe it for what you will is that if you work in a big office building where like 40 percent of their energy comes from sort of cooling and maintaining the temperature inside, if all of the humans inside were wearing clothing that kept that took down their you know comfortable uh, temperature by two degrees, that's two degrees less they have to heat or cool that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, imagi- right. I'm imagining like a you know sort of like the space 1999 outfits that they wore. The, those were probably made of this material. They were all white. Yeah, everyone uh, has very to be white. groovy. So everybody has to be wearing their their space uniform. I don't know. I I have a hydrophobic T-shirt. I don't know if you've tried one of those, which is another one of these crazy kind of you know. Uh, material science creations and it worked the first time it did shed water and it did shed um some sriracha that i squirted on it just to test um and uh and then i washed it once and it stopped working did and it, did it, and say it not turned no it's a t-shirt right. it didn't say not to wash it it's a hydrophobic t-shirt i know but they, the assumption is you're going to wash it. You know, you're not, you're not going to. How does I'm, that work? I mean, you're going to wash it in water? Yeah, I right? washed it in water and it should have, it, well, it should have shed the water. It should have just yeah. been like, forget it. I can't yeah. be washed. But then it, it stopped being as hydrophobic. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it became a little hydrophilic um, and it started to turn this kind of weird bruise color. So it wasn't only in pockets or just the, the whole it was just a plain white T-shirt. It didn't have a po- I, that's an interesting pocket question. Only in pockets. <laughs> so this is a thing that happens to pockets. Um, anyway, so I don't know if this if this works as well as the hydrophobic T-shirt. All I'm going to say is don't wash it. 
yeah. We're not at that point. You're not where sweating. I mean, it's it's wicking away all your sweat. So just hang it up at night. And when you go to the starship in the morning, just put it on again. <laughs> Do you remember Freezy Freakers? No. Freezy what? Freezy Freakers. They were the, these uh, gloves that you'd take out in wintertime, and they would ha- images would appear on them. What? When, when they got cold. I love these things. Like when I was a kid, that was like the biggest thing. It was like Trapper Keepers and Freezy Freakers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like that was that like was, a mood ring in reverse. Exactly. Nice. I can't think of a better segue into the VR minute. <laughs> the VR minute. Virtual reality this week. Well, let's see. What do we got? We got um, Vanishing Realms Update 2 is live. Uh, do you ever play Vanishing Realms? No. Uh, you got to play Me Vanishing either. Realms. You, have you, you haven't played that yet? No. All right. So that's a Vive um, game made by a former uh, Valve guy. He mm-hmm. like worked on all the early Half-Life games. Um, God, I'm blanking on his name right now. But like one guy made this entire beta of a game. And it was very impressive. They showed it off um, at one of the early uh, Vive release events. Um, super cool, kind of a dungeon crawler teleport game, but it's hack and slash, and um, they've he's revamped quite a lot of it. So now there's a lot more difficulty there. The monsters, um, you can adjust how aggressive they are, um, and supposedly like he's put quite a lot of work into this ground up. It's got a lot of attention on Reddit. Highly recommend checking it out. It, it's the game that my nine year old played. It's probably the most fun I've seen him have in VR because he was terrified. In this dungeon of these bad monsters, nice. and he—that's he, how you rate it. How scared are you, son? <laughs> well, like y- you don't get terrified on a on a flat screen, which you're playing on a 24 inch monitor. It's very removed, but when you're in that dungeon, and to see a nine year old who is is so alert and aware of the world go into VR and experience this kind of fear, but it was great because the monsters wouldn't attack until you get a little closer, and then he would switch. Like finally, when they started to attack, he switched into instinct mode, and he would fight the monster. And when he killed his first monster, I've never seen him so elated. He went upstairs. Like my wife was like, "What happened down there? I've never seen him like this. He's so happy and proud of himself." I think that there's definitely room for you know, getting over certain phobias um, in VR, uh, just based on that one subjective experience. Uh, Feral Rights has been announced to be coming out just next week, September 13th. Now, this is a big deal. Um, This is Insomniac's second game that they've released for VR. Uh, This is going to be on the Oculus Store, and um, it is a third-person, looks like an an adventure game, not unlike, um, is it Kronos? Um, What am I thinking of? Um, have you, you the other Insomniac game? No, no, no. no. It's it's another uh, third person adventure game. You played the first Insomniac game, right? What was that? I'm trying to remember the. <laughs> you played it. it. You liked it. Uh, the um, the why am I so bad at googling things or remembering anything? Uh, Insomniac VR, but so they have three games that they're uh, doing in VR. This Edge of Nowhere is the one that you Edge played. of Nowhere. Yes, um, Edge of Nowhere. I loved that. Was also a third person. Kind yes. of horror, like thrillerish adventure game, right? Yes, and the only problem with that game is uh, some of the the game mechanics uh, got repetitive, but the suspense was amazing, and the and the storytelling was great. Mm-hmm. Well, I would I would expect great things from Feral Rights um, because they've had a little even more time to work on it. This is all leading up to the one that I'm most excited about, which is the one that's touch enabled uh, called The Unspoken. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I wish Feral Rights was touch-enabled. Well, yeah, but touch isn't out yet, so if you're going to get a VR game from Insomniac now, it's going to be Gamepad. 
Um, so that's but that's exciting that they would just announce that out of the blue. It's coming out next week. Um, I bet that'll be good. Any hardware news? Well, not really. There is a chip now because Valve has released. You know, they've said, okay, people, we want third parties to start working on lighthouse support for um, you know the Vive technology. So now there's a company that is really that is going to be selling little tiny PCBs, circuit boards populated with different components that allow you to incorporate your own um, you oh, know, sensor you can tech. Make your own lighthouses. Well, you can't make the lighthouses, yeah. but you make the sensors. So all these little IR laser sensors that they have mounted all around the Vive headset and controllers, you'll now be able to buy. You can buy those sensors already, but they're making it easy. They're putting on circuit boards that are easily breadboardable, so you can prototype with them, easily wire things up. Is Valve li- licensing this out, or is it just kind yeah. of like, oh, okay. Well, I don't know. It, yeah, Valve is kind of helping people do it. They, they just want people to make these things. They want their version of VR to become a sort of crowd sourced in terms of like the development as quickly as possible so they're hoping htc is the first i think of many developers who embrace their technology and other people will follow suit and this is just part of that so this is now independence can can buy these chips i think like the the one the chip there's gonna be two versions of the chip uh, that you can buy of these boards one that's a little more populated with components that assist you in making it even easier that's gonna be like seven dollars a chip in quantities of 10 and then there's the other one which is like a bucket chip if you buy them in quantities of 50 um so it, it'll be a lot of fun. I mean, I, eventually this is going to get to the point where it's on Adafruit and, like, just people are buying these things and hacking up Arduinos and stuff to be VR. Anything that you're thinking about making? I, well, I think Norm had it, had it right when, like, the first things out are going to be tracked keyboards and mice. Like, that yeah. would be great if you could just see that in VR. If there was a great game, I would, I would build more track something, like Track Sword. <laughs> yeah. Track, yeah. Well, like, if you have these little components, like, these are basically pixels, like, in, in a sense of, like, if you could just buy these things and attach them to whatever you want and then have some very easy way to configure them in VR for whatever object that you want it to become. I think that, that there's a lot of potential. We got to do this as a project. I want to I want to attach one to my cat. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be great. Yeah. Um, Is that there's a certain game you have in mind? I mean, you know, there's so many things. Every game? Yeah, every game. Just how do you, it's just sort of the the tr- you know, playing with the cat game, but turn the cat into other things, right? You know? My cats are a little bit evil, so I think it would be great. I'm to not have sure that. my cat would stay in the tracked volume for more than a few seconds. Right, you'd well, have that, to you'd have to lock them into a room, basically. Right. <laughs> so. Or how about the wandering ally that like comes in from time to time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> that would be fun to set a, a cat loose in Vanishing Realms. Just see what happened. Yeah. Um, so we got Connect coming up now is only a month away. Uh, we're hoping to be in attendance. Norm, I'm sure, can answer whether or not we will be when he gets back. Um, but that's I'm excited for that. We'll have to get a lot of. I think we'll have a longer VR minute minute next week because Norm did a lot of VR uh, related stuff on the icebreaker. So I'll be interested to hear what he said about that. Can you say anything that he's worked on VR wise in the icebreaker? I can't because I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Testing this week. Hey, what have you guys been testing? Well, Norm, um, I got on the Vive the other day, which, I, you know, I, I do kind of infrequently. I use the Oculus a little more often because it's at my main PC. The Vive is kind of a big, it's kind of like a deal to set up. But I did it, went through a bunch of apps that I've been 
told I should check out and ones that just look cool on the on the uh, on Steam. One that I that I checked out that for whatever reason it's like I don't know if you go on the Reddit or are probably some more R Vive. Um, but if you go on the the um, the Vive Reddit, there's just every day there's a lot of talk about this game called Onward, which is a military sim game, and it's really it's it is interesting because they have a lot of simulated movement mechanics. So like you, if you want to reload your gun, you actually have to. You have to do that with the controller. Yeah, you like drop out the clip and then you insert a new one. Um, if like the heavy machine guns, you have to lift up this big piece, pull your ammo over, put it back down, and then cock it. All the fun of military sim games come to life. Well, yeah, reloading. If because if <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a big change from traditional yeah. shooters where you're pressing Y. And that means that if you are good at that stuff, you can reload faster. It means you're not as vulnerable. And so it's an interesting kind of element to that. You can you pull pins out of grenades and you cook them and you throw them when you're ready. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. What has people talking is the uh, traversal mechanic. So basically you move through the space by aiming your hand and then you press on the, on the touchpad and, and you move in that direction, whatever your, whichever direction your hand is moving in or pointed towards. And the rep- you know, people are reporting that they get motion sick in other games but not in this game. So there's something going on there where there might be something with the hand movement that, is Im- that improves the motion sickness. But there are still a lot of people getting motion sick. Like the hope is that we can find a traversal mechanic that you don't, that isn't teleporting that works for everybody. Um, and a lot of people were, were kind of hoping this might be it. I don't think we're there yet, but it is definitely has a lot of interesting mechanics. Um, the other game that I tried that I really quite do like is called Bracket NX. It's just a demo right now, but if you have a Vive, it's free on uh, on Steam. I highly recommend you check it out. It's kind of like a racquetball, futuristic. You're in a sphere, and all around you are these hexagons. That are some of them are green, and you have to hit the ball with your racket into these green things. The physics are the physics simulation. You know, it's not it's like zero g, but the trajectories that you hit the ball in feel very realistic. And you can put English on it. The higher, the faster you hit it, like you get better effects, and the ball will hit multiple, um, what like hexagons. Very cool. Highly recommend checking that out. I can't wait for that full game. Those are things I've been trying. Uh, you saw my Mayor McCheese outfit. I've been doing a lot of work on cosplay this week. How long did that take you to make that? Uh, it took me, when I first put it together, just about like three or four days to put everything together. Wow. Uh, and maintenance on it is hard because I sweat in it. And so you have to figure out how to sanitize. So spray bottles of vodka are my friend. <laughs> um, uh, but I think you've seen that. And I'll be coming out with a review of the jewel coming up as soon as Norm gets back uh, on the sous vide machines. Let's talk about a trip to a lost civilization or colony. Yeah, it was a lost civilization or city, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so earlier this summer, I realized a long-standing dream, and I joined um, an archaeological dig at Cahokia, which is a city that is on the east side of the Mississippi in Illinois. It's right right across the river from St. Louis. <clears throat> Sorry. And um, and it's it was the biggest city in North America about a thousand years ago. Um, the group of people who built it are long gone. Um, we don't have any real understanding of what they called the city. Um, or what their belief systems were. It's called Cahokia because a later group of Indians who lived there called it Cahokia. Um, And they had the city with about 30,000 people. They built massive earthen mounds that were like pyramids but flat on top and built these entirely by hand. 
And, um, and so now archaeologists are trying to figure out how big the city was, what life was like in the regular parts of the city. We kind of have an understanding of, you know, the main part of the city where they had this enormous mound, which is now called Monk's Mound for a variety of silly reasons. Um, we understand a lot about um, the really uh, large structures there. But the question is, what was it like for the 200 years that this city existed? And so um, two archaeologists, um, Sarah Bears and Melissa Baltus, were there with a group of students excavating an area that they thought would be just a typical neighborhood. And they do this by, they do magnetometry over a large area and they look to see anomalies. So it's not how Indy did it. Modern digs are a little more tech savvy. They're a little more tech savvy. And the thing about the city of Cahokia that is really amazing is that they built entirely with basically wood and clay. So there's no remains, like there's not like crumbling rocks or like old tombs with giant, you know, um, statues in them or anything like that. Um, And so in order to find remains, you really do have to go with a magnetometer. And one of the uh, ways that the people who lived there um, kind of conducted rituals was they would burn things. So when you find uh, magnetic signatures of burns, that's a really good place to start digging. And um, just like the um, uh, astronomers who looked for ground truthing with um, the filet, uh, archaeologists also call this ground truthing when they do magnetometry and they're like, whoa, look at this burned crap. This must be a neighborhood. And then they actually dig in an incredibly anal retentive way, um, measuring everything very carefully and taking lots of pictures. And so while I was there, what they found was that this seemingly sleepy neighborhood was actually probably um, kind of a a spiritual center. And they found this incredible um, place where it it had been some kind of... Archaeologists don't want to name things because they they don't want to project onto it. So they don't want to say it was a temple. They don't want to say it was a religious I you know icon. They want to just say it was a special use house. <laughs> special use. Uh, so the special use house was full of um, uh, rare rocks, um, beautiful pottery, statues, and everything had been burned. We actually found the remains of um, a very um, delicate um, knitted textile of some kind. And the only way that they could even find that um, was that it had burned and the burn had kind of left a pattern in the mud. Um, and so what it looked like was the people had dug out a big pit, lined it with textile, and put a bunch of valuable stuff in there, including things like um, projectile points, because arrowhead, you know, that's, we're not sure we want to say arrowhead, so it's projectile points. Um, and, you know, all of these other valuable possessions. And so I got to watch <laughs> archaeologists dancing around in the mud because every time they would find something, and it is very, very muddy there, there would be a kind of, you know, happy dance of, oh, my God, we, I can't believe we found this pottery here. It's, this pottery comes from really far away. Um, so what that meant was that they um, actually have found a very valuable spot to keep digging Um, And while they were there, they also were able to continue to disprove a very pervasive myth about Cahokia, which is that it was destroyed by a flood. Um, And there is no evidence um, of that. And they did um, a lot of um, boreholes, sampling of the ground uh, to um, basically pull out big, um, long sort of um, uh, cores from the ground to see if there were layers of sediment that that you'd expect from a big flood. There's nothing like that. 
So uh, the reason why people left Cahokia, abandoned the city about 200 years after it was founded, remains kind of a mystery. Um, mm. There was probably no big, um, you know, problem like a flood or anything like that. It kind of seems like people just got sick of it and may have gotten sick of the, government, go- the governance of the, the city. Um, there's a lot of evidence that um, about 100 years into the city's life, everyone changed the way their houses looked. It's really interesting. Like when you they start... They got an HOA and basically was like, yeah, this. Everybody changed it. So houses had, had, had at one time been oriented north-south and then they all are suddenly oriented uh, in different directions. Um, and again, we don't know for sure why that is or how people, you know, was it a top down thing where suddenly the people in, in charge were saying, all right, everybody fix your house. Or if it was more of a, like a, a style, like an archaeological, or sorry, an ar- like an architectural style. Do we know what religion this culture subscribed to? Um, not really. I mean, there was, it was probably, uh, related to, in some ways to other native religions. So probably animistic. Um, they do have a lot of um, uh, sculptures that involve um, depictions of animals um, and farming and corn. There's a really amazing statue that was discovered at Cahokia that's a woman, and she's plowing the back of a snake, and the snake is turning into corn. And it's just this amazing image of, you know, this kind of deadly creature that's being turned into, you know, corn was their most valuable crop. But I don't recall snakes being that common in that area of the U.S. No, Maybe. there's there's snakes and it's Illinois. So there's there's snakes and, um, you know, they would have they would have definitely seen them around and known that they were poisonous. There's a lot of snake imagery, um, and especially as you go further south. Um, and of course, there's lots of imagery of birds and fish um, and a lot of the other uh, food that they would have grown. I mean, they were farmers. Um, so, uh, so yeah, they they definitely and they also um, clearly were influenced by cosmology. They they have a, a, a structure there called Woodhenge, which is basically like Stonehenge, where they are tracking solstices. Um, and of course, the wood is gone, but we can still see the post holes where the wood used to be. So there's a, a reconstruction of Woodhenge. If you ever want to visit Cahokia State Park, highly recommended. You can see the reconstruction of Woodhenge. You can walk up to the top of Monk's Mound, which is a pretty profound experience. Um, it's really, really amazing. You can see all of St. Louis um, from the top. And uh, so, yeah, so it was a fantastic trip, and I learned a lot about um, about how archaeology works, the nitty-gritty. Have you written about your trip already on ours? Uh, it's, I'm actually going to be – I'm writing about it now. It should be up in the next week or two, so you can look for it there. Cool. We'll link to it for sure. Thanks. Uh, this is a great um, uh, a moment to talk about this because Adam was – in Las Vegas on his recent trip, and he met up with Sarah Parchak. I'm saying that right, the archaeologist that won the TED Prize for mm-hmm. locating a lost city using you know, essentially satellite imagery. Mm-hmm. So I think he's going to be probably talking about her. I had no idea they knew each other because one of her story of essentially mar- modern archaeology and finding a lost city is one of the best stories I heard last year. In yeah. Science. And recently, um, as well at Angkor Wat, um, which was another great civilization, actually right around the time of Cahokia, about a thousand years ago, the Khmer civilization, we now, um, there just was a story that came out this past year about using LIDAR 
to actually map the city because like Cahokia, the city had been made mostly of wood. So it was really hard to reconstruct how big it had been. People thought, well, Angkor Wat, it was, was kind of big. Um, but now that we've looked at it with LIDAR and there's, you can actually, um, if you Google LIDAR Angkor Wat online, you'll find um, pictures of it. We now know that the city grid was enormous and probably about a million people lived there, which would have made it the biggest city in the world, most awesome civilization of the year, you know, 1100. So wow. Cambodia kicking ass. Annalie, thank you so much for coming on this show. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me, you guys. You are an eloquent, intelligent person. You've doubled our scientific legitimacy. <laughs> I would say multiplying any I've, number times zero is still zero. Yeah, I think I've lowered your your gaming legitimacy by a significant amount, too. So. I hate it on one-top games. You're fine. <laughs> sure. Temple run forever! <laughs> Do you have anything to plug, stuff that you're doing coming up? Um, I just the Cahokia uh, stuff. I'm working on a book actually about lost cities that will probably not be out for a couple years, but this is all part of my research for that. So. Aren't you speaking at that Dent the Future thing? That's true. I'm speaking at Dent Space, which is um, September 22nd. 21st and 22nd. 21st and 22nd. I'm there on the 22nd. It's in San Francisco. For those that want to come, a lot of friends have tested are speaking, including our own Simone Yetch is speaking. Mary Roach is there. A uh, number of other authors. Uh, uh, Natalie Bethalia from the Kepler Mission, mm-hmm. who was a late, uh, lead on that. It's an incredible lineup of uh, speakers. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Anything else coming up? Where can people find you? People can find me on Ars Technica, or you can always find me on my own website, AnnaLeeNewitz.com. And, uh, yeah. Annalene on on the Twitters. Yes, AnnaLeeIn on the Twitters. Awesome. I don't have much to promote. What, wasn't there something on Colbert this week we should talk Oh, about? yeah, Simone was on Col- Colbert this week. She was on Colbert on Friday night. You can uh, find a, a link. I'll put it in the show notes, but it's up on YouTube and on the CBS website. She forced Steven to um, use the lipstick robot. Good for her. Uh, good, good for everybody. I'm super happy for her. Good for everyone. You have anything coming up, sir? I don't. Nope. You can find me on the Twitter at Jareware. Um, you are at Science At Quiche. Science Quiche. I'm busily readying, readying the Bay Area Science Festival, which I work on, which is at the end of October, which features the Tested Live show. Um, and you know, more on that soon. Will uh, Smith is actually, speaking of live shows, he's at XOXO right now. And there he's planning to do a live uh, shoot in Foo VR, which will be um, the second major you know, Foo VR shoot. Um, he's doing it Friday, so tomorrow if you're listening to this on Thursday. And hopefully that, that's not going to be broadcast live on the internet, but they will have a taping of it. And they'll be releasing that soon. I can't wait to check that out and see how that goes. Awesome. Uh, Annalie, who are you on Twitter? A-N-N-A-L-E-E-N. Norm will be back next week, we think, if a polar bear didn't get him. There's a great shot of him, of a polar bear he shot. But not shot, like <laughs> shot with a phone. <laughs> uh, if, if you, I think Tested retweeted it. If not, look for um, Google Dan. Look for Norm with like a severed bear head. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can't wait to hear the story behind this bear. Apparently he was not that far from away from it. Wow. Yeah. So well, stories to come next week, no doubt. Um, and we will see you then. Hi there. I didn't see you. Tested. That was awesome. I got new glasses for VR too. That makes me look extra nerdy. Um, wow.
Yeah, <laughs> 